Uh, as you know, uh, we've been going through this series called the 29th chapter, uh, and, and we've spent a, a lot of different Sunday mornings kind of explaining what we mean uh, by the 29th chapter, you know, that, that we fall into the storyline of, of, of the church, really of the redemptive uh, movement of God throughout history, and that uh, we, we completed before this study a study on the book of Acts, and it was really a foundational study on what the church is, what its mission is, how the Spirit of God moved through the church, and how the Spirit of God is still moving through the church. And so we come to this, the 29th chapter, 28 chapters in Acts. We are completing, uh, we are continuing, I should say, that story. Uh, and so, so we've talked about that. We've talked about the redemptive story of God throughout Scripture and where we fit into it. And I, and I want to also um, make another uh, application to this study, another way for us to be thinking about this. Uh, because as much as this is a, a, a survey of what God is doing and how we fit into it, it's also for us a time as a church to reflect on who we are. Uh, as Grace Community Church, who has God called us to be in the place that he's put us? Uh, how do we fit into not just the entire scheme of the redemptive historical drama that began with creation and that will find its culmination uh, when, when Christ returns and when the fullness of the kingdom is here on earth, but where do we fit right here in Harnett County, uh, 2012, where do we fit? Who are we as a church? And then, uh, because the church is not just an organization, right? It's an entity. It's, it's a collective of people. It's a body. Who are you? Uh, who am I? As a believer, as a, a part of Grace Community Church, as a part of the body of Christ uh, in Anger, Fuquay, Lillington, Dunn, Clayton, Garner, did I get everything? Duncan, uh, yeah, yeah, all around, right? <laughs> In the tri-county area, we'll say, all right? Who are we as God's people doing that? And so it's made sense first to survey what God is doing and then to, 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 to bring it in, to narrow our focus, and that's what we've done. Uh, if you recall, we, we talked about the mission of the church uh, the purpose statement, really, of the church, uh, which is to exalt the Lord, establish believers, and engage the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now we're talking about our core values. And, and last year, or last week, not last year, last week, Brad introduced us to our core values. And we're not going to get the full summary, but I do want us to, to look at the list, again, of core values. These are the ways that we go about fulfilling our purpose. These are the values that guide us as a body, as a church, as a congregation. And so these ought to be valuable to you and me as individual members of the body of Christ here at Grace Community Church. Uh, and, and they are life-related Bible teaching. And we spend a lot of time talking about how God uh, speaks. God is, is one of, God is the only God who speaks directly to all his people. Uh, and, and he speaks through Scripture. And, and what he says is applicable to every facet of our lives. Uh, and so we want to preach God's word as it applies to life. But we preach God's word. 
Uh, the second value, participatory worship. And Brad spent a good amount of time last week talking about participatory worship. Uh, you, worship is what we do, right? It, it's our primary function. All of the other functions that we have serve to lead us back to worship. Uh, John Piper in his book, uh, Let the Nations Be Glad, said, Look, missions, which is what that whole book is about, missions, going to all the nations and proclaiming gospel truth, that is not the primary focus or purpose of the church. Worship is. Missions exists, Piper says, because worship doesn't. And likewise, we could say of all of the the ministries of the church, preaching exists. Because worship in its true form doesn't. Discipleship exists because worship doesn't. We have a children's ministry because our children need to learn how to worship. We have a youth ministry for the same reason. Everything the church does, we do to show people how to worship with their whole lives. And one day, Christ will return. We will be perfected. We will have learned how to worship. The entire world, as Piper puts it, will be white hot, burning with the worship of Jesus Christ. And the time for missions will be at an end. The time for preaching will be at an end because we'll see Christ face to face and we will worship. But until then, we rehearse, we practice, we do it as a church. And we do it together, participatory worship. Today we're going to be talking about dependence on God. Over the next couple weeks, we're going to look at team leadership. How the church functions through groups of people working together. Community through home groups. It's a natural offshoot of worshiping together, of leading ministry and life together. Every member a minister. All of us are called to the work of the ministry. And yes, there's some, and, and, and we've been praying about it and thinking about it, there's some who are appointed to, to specific offices, elder, deacon. There are some who are vocationally uh, staffed. We have staffed uh, workers, staffed ministers, uh, but all of us are called to minister one to another and, and, and to the world. And that's something, here's the thing, is that Brad and, and I... Um, we have a very specific skill set, and it's, it's very similar, and we, we also have very similar uh, deficiencies. And Brad has been around a lot longer, a lot longer. Uh, you think I forget these things, but a lot longer, remember? Uh, and, and so he's had a lot more time to work through those deficiencies, uh, but it's still a part of who we are. And so there are things that we don't do well that David and Keisha and and the elders uh, haven't been gifted in, and, and, and the same with the deacons, that you have, right? The Spirit gifts each person individually and differently. It's a part of the beautiful system that God has created so that the church might lack nothing. I am lacking. Oh, how I'm lacking. Melissa's laughing. (laughs) She knows firsthand. Uh, You you guys get me in chunks. She gets the whole thing. And I am lacking. And I'm so thankful that in the ways that I'm lacking, God has equipped 
Keisha and Chris and, and Joe Aiello and Neil and, and the ways that I'm lacking, the church is not. I thank Jesus every Sunday and I should thank him every day that the church is not made up of a whole bunch of people who are just like me. And because of that, every member must be a minister. One to another. Someone needs to minister to our elders and our teaching elder. He needs it. And God has created and gifted some of you to do that. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, World transformation if we believe what the Bible says is true and if we are filled with the power of the Spirit and as we, uh, being filled with the power of the Spirit, use the gifts that He has given us, something is going to happen. The gospel is going to be seen as powerful in our midst. As a group of people who, because we are gifted differently, we are just different people. And in this church, we have a lot of different people. We've got northerners, thank the Lord. We've got Southerners. Thank the Lord. We've got people who grew up in wealth. We've got people who grew up with little. Uh, We've got a, a variety of people here with a variety of different interests, talents, gifts, pet peeves. This is a great plan by our God, and it's also potentially a recipe for disaster. I mean, we have Carolina fans and State fans and Duke fans in this church. It could get violent, you know. But God, through His Spirit, as we are united in the Spirit, God demonstrates to the entire world how powerful the gospel actually is. As the church is united, as believers from North Carolina travel to India and find instant community, and it happens. The entire world is, is uh, witness to what the gospel is and what it does in people's lives. And then we proclaim it in word first and in deed also. And then lives are transformed, world transformation. Uh, and then we value creativity, innovation, and excellence. And look, you're not going to find a specific verse wherein Peter or Paul says to the church, you know, Be creative and innovative and excellent in the Lord Jesus. But we serve a God who is creative and who is innovative and who does everything perfectly. And so we want to worship and glorify God in ways that reflect who He is. And so we value those things. We want the world to know that we come in the name of the Lord and that He deserves the best no matter what it is. So everything we do, we want to do with those three uh, characteristics, that creativity, that innovation, and excellence. Uh, today, we're going to be focusing on dependence on God. And, I, and I've really been thinking about, man, I spent a long time, I've known for two weeks that this is what I was going to be preaching on, and, and there was kind of this approach. How do we talk about dependence on God? Are we going to talk about it as a church? You know, as a church, this is how we're dependent on God. We're going to talk about it as individuals. Um, and really, what it kind of came to the conclusion um, of is that for this, how we as individuals 
handle this is going to directly affect how we as a church do this. And so we can talk about, and in essence, we are going to be talking about what it means as a church to depend on God. Um, You know, we could talk about things like not being dependent on the talent or skill of any individual or individuals. Uh, We know that we have a very talented singer, musician, songwriter who leads a band of very talented musicians and singers. We know that we are blessed to have the music team that we have, but we are not dependent on them. And we we recognize that what God does, He doesn't do because of them, but He chooses to do through them. And if for some reason we are left without that talented group of people, and it's me playing the piano and Brad singing, that somehow, miraculously, the work of the Lord is still going to be, be accomplished. We don't depend on people or, or ministries or money. Uh, and we could talk about that. Um, and I snuck it in a little bit. Uh, but we're not going to. We're going to spend most of the time talking about what it means for you and for me to be dependent on God. Um, and I thought it was kind of fun, and so I went with it. Uh, the title of the sermon, because I don't think it's in the bulletin, is just that, Dependence on God. But then I, a holistic approach, uh, and you'll, you'll see what we're going for. Um, and so, if you would, uh, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 17. Uh, and this was actually pretty uh, ironic this week, Wednesday came around, and I'd been spending time reading and preparing, um, going through commentaries, kind of ripping up the Bible, well, not ripping, but you know, ripping through the Bible, um, trying to figure out what it was, that, how am I going to talk about dependence on God? What, uh, I mean, it's something that seems so cliche, uh, so simple, and yet it's, how am I going to talk about this? Wednesday comes around, I've, I've got all of this stuff kind of piling together, and God kind of hits me with the realization that until Wednesday, I, haven't even, I hadn't even really spent serious time praying about, <laughs> and for some of you that, I mean, you know, I hadn't spent any time really praying about what God wanted me to teach or wanted us to learn. Um, and I found it really ironic that I'm sitting here depending on myself and knowledge and resources and not even on God in a sermon about depending on God. Um, And so I don't want us to make uh, that mistake this morning either. Um, And so before we actually get to the text, what I want us to do is is to spend some time in prayer. Um, First some silent prayer and then I'll close this. But uh, what I'm going to be praying is that the Spirit of God would somehow work through a broken vessel who doesn't know how to do the very thing that he's teaching. And what I want you to pray is that the Spirit of God would open your ears, your hearts, your minds to what his word uh, is going to be telling you and teaching you. And pray that, that God would use even me to communicate deep truth to you about who he is and who we are in him. So let's spend, let's spend just a moment um, praying those things, preparing our hearts for what God is going to do.
Father, it really does seem as though the odds are stacked against us. Our brokenness, our sin nature, the difficulty in communicating even in the same culture, let alone communicating words that were written thousands of years ago to people who knew nothing of the things that we know and and of whom we know so little about, God. But we know that your words were true then and that by the power of your spirit, by your sovereign providence, uh, your, your sovereign leading of all things, that they are true today and that your spirit can make them alive in our hearts. So I pray that as I preach, God, that you would be preached. And that as we hear, Lord, that the gospel would be heard. And that our hearts would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and stand with me as we read Jeremiah chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 5. Um, And we're going to go through verse 8. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhibited, uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. This is the word of the Lord. Um, And you can be seated. Before we even go into breaking this text down and identifying what God is saying through this text, uh, I want to do something that we don't typically do uh, a lot, and that is to talk about grammar. Um, Brad will talk about it sometimes. We don't want to spend a lot of time in grammar because, well, quite quite frankly, it's grammar. Um, And so... Uh, but, but it's important to know what's going on here. Uh, it's important for us to identify the genre uh, of literature that we're reading. Uh, we're reading from Jeremiah. Obviously, Jeremiah was a prophet. And so the book as a whole is prophetic literature. But this little piece of Jeremiah chapter 17 is not like the piece that precedes it. Uh, verses 1 through 5 are prophetic uh, literature, uh, the way that they're structured, but then Jeremiah stops speaking specifically in his voice and begins to speak, thus says the Lord. Now look, I, I know, uh, we believe that all of the Bible is thus says the Lord. It is. Uh, but in some instances, and specifically in the prophets, thus says the Lord means literally, thus says the Lord. Jeremiah was there, doing whatever he was doing, and then all of a sudden, thus says the Lord. Alright, and then, this is what the Lord thus says. Cursed is the man whose trust, or cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. And all of a sudden, we, we leave kind of just standard prophetic literature, and we enter into wisdom literature. 
What's the best, the easiest example of a book in the Bible filled with wisdom literature? Proverbs. Um, And a very common element in wisdom literature is for there to be a couplet of phrases, two phrases that are a little bit different, sometimes a lot a bit different, but that modify each other. And this may seem self-explanatory here, but it's important for us to realize that that second phrase, whose heart turns away from the Lord, um, is the same as the first part. All right, it's not two separate phrases. It's not cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. It's also not cursed is the man whose heart, or, and also cursed is the man whose heart turns away from the Lord. Um, it is that the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength turns his heart away from the Lord. And so when we talk about this, we're going to talk about a holistic approach to dependence on God. And you have to understand that you cannot separate these things. Just so that you know that the grammar is right, you might not be doubting me now. Some of you are say, grammatically, is that, is that the case? Most of you probably aren't. But let's look at a, a verse that comes later. It's actually verse 7. Uh, and in verse 7, it says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the, the Lord. And so you see the, the highlighted portion is telling you what it means to trust in the Lord. Now, now this is really interesting to me, because all of a sudden what you realize is, Um, we tend to talk about things uh, that we place our trust in. But that's not simply what God is. We don't place our trust simply in God, expecting Him to provide us then with the things that we need. Our trust is God. Which is huge. Because what that means is not only do we trust Him to provide what we need, as we grow in Christ, we realize He is all we need. But anyway, we'll come back to that. Because we see that the highlighted portion, um, it modifies the earlier part. It fills it completely. And so if we go back to verse 5, thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man whose trust or cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. And so what we're forced to do here is realize something. Uh, it's kind of the first element of dependence on God, is that it is a, a holistic thing. What do I mean by that? Uh, I mean that it, it's a mind issue. The one who trusts in man. And that's speaking, again, of this idea of, in my mind, I trust in this principle or in this person um, but not only that who makes the flesh his strength okay and so this idea that they're depending on something other than God the flesh for strength and for action and so there's this idea of of the body or the will and so we've got the mind and and the will but also when we begin to realize that not trusting in God is the same as having your heart turned away from God, it's a heart issue as well. And and I I really wanted to say that and harp on that because for a long time growing up, uh, this is what I would hear. Um, And it was usually used with salvation. Um, But it would be the phrase, uh, more or less he missed heaven by 18 inches or whatever it is. And the idea is that he had it here, right? But he didn't have it here. And that was the problem. And what I'm saying to you is that this verse 
as well as all of Scripture, tells us that if it's not here, it's not really here either. And if you're not living it out, if you're not acting it out, then it's not here or here. And that's the reality of it. You might have some suppositional knowledge that God could be in control, but you don't know how God can be depended on unless you have reckoned with it in your heart and you live it out. Until you live it out, you do not understand what it is to trust God. And so some of you think you have it here, but, oh man, if the Lord could just bring it here or get it to my action. Well, guess what? You don't have it. It's holistic. It's all of you. And this isn't the only, other, this isn't the only place where we see that. Uh, during the, the offering, we saw some verses on the screen. Proverbs 3, uh, 1 through 6. And in specifically in verses 5 and 6, which are very common verses, if you don't have these memorized, memorize them. But it says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understandings. And in all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Right? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all of your ways. Heart, understanding, ways, heart, mind, will. All of these come together. And then what? He directs your paths. It's about the whole of you. And that's what we're going to talk about. That's the holistic approaches. Three approaches. Uh, A holistic approach to dependence on God means that there must be a realization of the mind. There must be a reckoning of the heart. And there must be a response of the will. All three for dependence on God. So we're going to talk about each of those. Uh, It's really going to be three parts. The genesis of this was kind of that... I had like six or seven possible sermons and and I had it all in one big sermon and I was thinking they don't want to be here for five hours so I'm going to cut it down Um, and as I cut and trimmed and tried to cut and trim I was like I don't really want to trim this I don't want to we're just going to try and and, and shrink it together Um, and so uh, I should have had you pray that the Lord would also keep me concise uh, so that we can we can get out of here at a good time. Um, but we're going to look at all three of those, and, and they may seem like many sermons that hopefully kind of fit together uh, somewhat of a vignette. I don't know. Um, but the first is a response, or is a realization of the mind. Uh, and so what I want to do here is I really just want to tear each of us down. All of us. Um, and I want to talk about the reality of the mind that we must, we must, we must come to terms with. And that is the fact that there is nothing that we have control over. We have control over nothing. You cannot begin to depend on God until you realize how utterly out of control you are. And the problem is that we live in a culture where independence and control are glorified and worshipped. And you believe that you control your own destiny. And you might say that's not true, but you do. We do. All the time we live as though we control our own destiny. We relate and react to people as if they control their own destiny. You know, they wouldn't be poor if they worked harder. Am I right? I got where I am because I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I had a little goodwill, little hope, and some elbow grease, and that's why I'm here. 
Look at that guy. We ought to admire him. He's self-made. He's a self-made millionaire. He's a self-made whatever. And we, we don't even acknowledge the basic fact, the basic reality. Uh, what is the number one factor in how wealthy you're going to be? It's not hard work. It's not even who you know. It's where you're born. If you're born in Malawi, in Africa, the chances of you being a multi-billionaire, just about at zero. Is that because you're lazy? Is it because of something you have control over? No. Now look, are we called to work hard? Absolutely. Is there a reality in which we're responsible for things? Absolutely. But let's not get beyond ourselves here. Let's not get so arrogant as to think that we didn't have the good fortune or blessing of being born in a place where we actually can become wealthy. Mostly, even within the context of America, where you're born, what you're born into, is going to be more or less a determining factor in where you're going to end up. We love to relish in the exceptions. They make great movies, right? The Pursuit of Happiness, wonderful. I'm bawling at the end. I'm bawling in the middle. They're in the bathroom. This is sad. They're going to do it. I love it. God bless America. That's not, that's not the norm, right? These, these guys dropping out of college, never going to co- whatever, and then becoming billionaires, that's not the norm. But we love to relish in that idea, right, that anybody can be anything if they will just believe and do it. And it's helpful because then we don't have to have compassion on the people who don't do it, right? But we have no control over that. And so here are some common human experiences over which we have no control. First of all, birth. None of you voted on or chose, you know, there was no pre-utero discussion with God. You know, I, New York, please. All right, thanks. You know, there's none of that. You know, nobody who was born in Haiti was like, God, you know, I'd really like to be born in Wanamint. Uh, I like challenges. You know? Death. Now we begin to get a little bit closer to the heart because we do think we have control over death. I know it. I've been dieting for a while, exercising, thinking maybe if I stop eating junk, I can extend my life, but then God has to remind me that you could be the healthiest, most well-fit person in the planet, and you could still get cancer. You could still be hit by a car. You could eat raw red meat, smoke, and drink a pack of beer every hour your entire life and still make it to 85. You hear some of these victory stories of people in your family. Everybody, I feel like, has one person in their family where they're 96, and all they ever ate was like a a raw egg mixed with beer. And, And that's all they ever did. And they're 95, and they're the healthiest person you know. Right? It doesn't add up because we're not in control of it. We're not. Our spouse, we're reading this book in our home group. It's called The Meaning of Marriage. If you haven't read it, you need to, and I don't care if you're married or not. You need to read this book. It's by Tim Keller, and in the very first chapter, he quotes a guy named Stanley Hauerwas, and here's what Stanley Hauerwas says. You never marry the right person. You always marry the wrong person. And the reason is that you don't know who you marry until you're married because... Marriage actually changes you. 
And so who you married isn't who you married because once they're married, they're a different person. I know! (laughs) You have no control over it. All the time you hear these heartbreaking stories, I married this person. He was wonderful. I had no idea that he would beat me or that he's been cheating on me or she's been cheating on me for all this time. I had no idea. You have no control over that. Women, remember, you have no control over your spouse. Please, remember. (laughs) Our children. Our children. This is a hard one because as parents, we know it. You know, from the beginning, we have control over every aspect of their life. But at the end of the day, you do not have control over who your children are and who they will become. And I mean this as encouragement for some of you because you are going through hell right now. And your child is making decisions that you cannot fathom where they came from. And you're beginning to think, what did I do wrong? Well, here's the problem, minor problem, actually kind of difficult to fix, though, is that it wasn't dependent on you. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. God gave you a call. He gave you a command. You're supposed to do it. But in the end, it's dependent on the Spirit of God, how he moves what he does, what your child will become. Free yourself of that guilt right now. Even if for a second you tune out to what I'm saying and you just beg God to be your strength in this, free yourself of that guilt. And parents of younger kids who are still coming up, if you think that who they become is dependent on you, you will almost inevitably push them away. Because you will be overbearing and trying to make them be who you think they should be and, and they, will re- they will rebel. It happens all the time. We have, <laughs> we have no control over our salvation. So here we go. Right? Because here's what we think in the very beginning. That I was lost and that I saw the light. I found the light. You know the song, right? Um, and that I found Jesus. He was over there. Um, and, and I made this decision to put everything that I had into him. And here's what happens as you grow in the faith and as you continue to read the Bible, continue to read the words of Jesus. You realize that you were all the way over there and Jesus was seeking you the entire time. And that his spirit broke through the doors. You had the doors locked and bolted. You were even plastering bricks behind the door. And the spirit of God kicked in the door. And he drug you out of the house into glorious salvation. And when you realize that, your heart jumps. Because God is good. It's easy for us in America where the gospel seems abundant, where you can go anywhere and hear the gospel to think that it's dependent on us. But if you live in one of those tribes in Suriname before God called, uh, um, wow, before God called the Lytles and and before uh, God called the Yoners, 
If you lived there, you realized there was no one to bring you the gospel and that in some way it was completely out of your control, but the Spirit of God broke down the doors of someone's heart, sent them to you, broke down the doors of your heart, and filled you so that you could believe. And then you responded responsibly in belief. You're not as in control as you think. The government, this is a big one, right? We vote. We control our leaders. No. No. Daniel 2, right? Um, Daniel interprets a dream uh, of Nebuchadnezzar. And he goes into this rejoicing in the Lord because the, the Lord sets up kings, takes them down. Brings disaster, calamity, good, alike. It's God who does that. That's what sovereignty means. It means that you cast your vote, but God already has it. He's got it taken care of. So what that means is that, look, your guy didn't win. The world's not going to end. I promise. Because God's in control. He's in control of the justice that happens on an eternal sense, even in, in the temporal sense. Uh, your health, you're not in control of that. Your doctors aren't in control of that. Prosperity, Again, you don't control those things. And your mind has to realize this. I'm just like Solomon's mind did. Uh, Solomon, and, and we're going to talk more about Solomon later, in, in Ecclesiastes 3, he, he has this great thing, and he says, look, to everything, turn, turn, there's a season and a time to every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. And then he goes through all these things, a time for war, a time for peace, a time to build, a time to tear down, to love, to hate, to gather stones together, to scatter them. There's a time, and that time keeps coming and keeps going, and one day uh, you will die, and then generations will die, and it will be as though you never existed. And time marches on. You are not in control. You're a blip. You're not insignificant. But, given a long enough timeline, the life expectancy of everyone drops to zero. The survival rate, I should say, drops to zero. So we have this realization in our mind, but we also have a reckoning of the heart. And these two things happen at the same time. And Solomon, it happened because he, throughout the, through, throughout the book of the Ecclesiastes, he's saying, what things can I do, can I control to make myself feel satisfied? Art, wisdom, drinking and eating and, and just utter, uh, utter hedonism. Uh, all of these things. And what does he come to the conclusion? What's his conclusion of all of these things? It's vanity. It's vanity. There has to be a reckoning, a day of reckoning, a confrontation in your heart. And unfortunately for most of us, that has to come by getting cancer or by tragedy. That doesn't mean that every time something bad happens, that's God trying to reckon with your heart. But for a lot of us, it takes losing a job to realize we were never in control in the first place. And that everything, every good thing comes from God. Every good thing. Your child is a gift from God that belongs to God. 
You're not dependent on that child for who you are. They're not dependent on you. God can prove that in any moment. And so the reality that, that I hope we come to today is that before that moment comes, we already have that reckoning in our heart by the power of the Spirit that we need to depend on God so that when those moments come, come, and they will, they will, when they come, we'll be adequately prepared to rely on the grace of God and move through them with joy. It's huge. This dependence on God. It's a reckoning of the heart. We're going to move quickly through, so let's just go to the next one. Uh, it's a response of the will. All right? And here's what's amazing about this. We've been talking about how God is in control of everything. Right? Not us. And so it's, so, so kind of the, the obvious conclusion is it's foolish to put your trust in us or someone else or anything else other than God. It's foolish to turn your heart away from God because only He is in control. Right? Um, but then here's kind of the ironic thing is that that demands action. It demands a response of the will. And here's the beautiful thing. Here's the, the great thing that when you begin to grasp fully how dependent on God we are that frees us to act. Now we're not acting out of legalism or out of the law. We're acting out of the grace that abounds from a God who we are dependent on because He is sovereign over all things. Dependence on God frees us to do so many things. We've been talking about participatory worship. Dependence on God frees us to worship honestly. Because now we have a reason to worship. His love will not fail us now. The power of the cross has crushed death. Uh, he, death has been crushed to death by the cross. Jesus Christ is all to us. We can sing those honestly. And with full hearts, because we know it's true. We're only free to do that as we are dependent on God. And as we do that, guess what happens? We remember just how dependent we are, and we worship more. It's this vicious, great, glorious cycle. We're free to love prodigally, right? Uh, The prodigal son, that word prodigal, it means reckless. We're free to love people recklessly without regard for what it may cost us because we're not dependent on the things that we have or the things that we want. We're dependent on God. Our trust is in the Lord and our trust is Christ. If we are saved, we have Christ. And Christ is everything. And since that's dependent on Him and not us, we can't lose Christ. And so we can give everything away and still have everything that we need. It's big. You can love prodigally. Um, It frees you to act faithfully. I mean, it frees you to do that. Uh, The best example I can think of is a parent, a father. What are you called to do? You're called to care for your children and your wife. You're called to bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You're called to provide for them. You're called to care for your family. When you begin to depend on yourself, you're not free to do that because you begin to, you begin to take what it means, what you think they need, and narrow it into one thing. Let's say money. That's the easiest one. And so instead of working 40 hours a week, you begin to work 50 hours a week because your kids need it. Um, you need to pay those bills, and that's good. But then you need to work 55, 60 hours a week because 
Um, you need to provide for them in case you die, and so you need insurance. You want them to go to college. That's a part of providing for your kids. And so you're working 65 hours, making sure that they have a college fund. And then you're working 70 hours because they need it. And then the next thing you know, your kids go to college, you die, they're set, and they never knew their father. And the one thing they actually needed was a father who was there showing them what kind of father God is. Now, your heart was in the right place in the beginning, but you got caught up so much in the law, so much in dependence on yourself, that you began to neglect the very thing that God told you to do. Whereas when you realize that God is a gracious father who gives his children bread and not stones, and that God will take care of all that you need, you are freed. To be with your children without guilt, without worry, knowing that God will provide what you need. And if he doesn't provide it, you didn't need it. College is not a necessity. Don't let them tell you otherwise. Don't kill yourselves. Don't neglect your family spiritually. Don't neglect your wife, your spouse spiritually. Wives, don't neglect your husbands physically, spiritually, emotionally for the sake of your kids because your kids aren't dependent on you. But when you realize that they're dependent on God as you are and that God can be trusted, you're free to do those things. It's a gracious response to the work of God and not a law that will ultimately kill you and those you're trying to save. It frees you to give generously because the Lord provides, to work diligently. We're talking about the church, right? We're talking about what it means to be a part of the church. And some of you are doing so much. Some of you know that you could be doing more. Some of you are scared to be doing more because I don't have more of myself to give. But here's the reality is that God provides the need. He fills it. He provides for the need, I should say. He fills you. He meets your needs. You can trust in him. When you feel like you don't have more to give and you give more, guess what? He brings more supply. It's like, again, parenting. It's the best thing in the world. And you have one kid and you're like, oh my goodness, all this love came out of nowhere and I'm just you know, spewing it on this child. And then you find out that you're having another kid and you're like, well, I don't know where that my... You know, and then, oh, there was more love to give. Right? You don't have to like cut your love of the first kid in half. Right? And then progressively more and more each kid you have. God provides that. And it's the same as you pour yourself out. God provides more. But look here, there are some of you who are on the opposite end of the spectrum. And you think, you, you genuinely think so much that the church and, and the work of the church depends on you that you are not willing to rest. And Brad talked about Sabbath. We hit it hard, but you cannot hit it hard enough because we were created for the Sabbath. And the Sabbath for us. And some of you will not rest. And it is, again, evidence that you do not depend on God, but rather yourself. And so, dependence on God frees you to rest without guilt. To rest guiltlessly. All of those things we're free to do as we depend on God. As we turn away from ourselves and from the flesh and turn towards God. And this is great because as a church, if we begin to collectively do these things, God is going to bless us because this is not our strategy, it's his. And so you can look back at that that second part of the verses that we read in Jeremiah 17 and you can see, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water. 
The more fruit you take from him, the more he's going to produce because he's by the source. Where the vine, or where the branches, he's the vine. You can pluck all the fruit that I have to give, and that's okay. I might be tired, but the source is going to provide me with more that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, when trials and tribulations come, for its leaves remain green because it's not dependent on it and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Don't we want to be that as a church? When there's drought, whatever that may look like, don't we want to always be green? Because of the Lord. Because we're not a people who depend on money, on talent, on strategy, and ministries, per se, and programs, but rather on the Lord. Don't you want your family to look like that? Even in time of need, we flourish because we're not dependent on food or good circumstances or shelter, but rather on the Lord. It's ours in Christ Jesus. It's ours in Christ Jesus. We have a chance to practice that now by giving to the Benevolence Fund. You already gave. You already tithed this month. And the economy is still not awesome. Things are tight. Do you believe in God and is your trust and hope God or not? You have a time to actively demonstrate that by giving to those who are in need. Because look, the way God is providing for them is through us. It's great to be a part of that continuum. Let's pray. God, you're good. And we recognize that there is nothing good in us. And we are so thankful that it does not depend on us, but rather on you. And so, God, I pray that right now our minds would grasp it, that our hearts would come to terms with it, and that our actions would reflect the truth that you are sovereign over all things, that you are good and worthy of our trust, and that you will not fail us. You will not leave us or forsake us. In fact, if we trust in you with all of our heart and not lean on our own understanding, but instead acknowledge you in all of our ways and all the things we do, we know that you will make our path straight. You will direct our paths. And that path leads to the city of life where Christ is king. We'll thank you and praise him. We'll respond in worship for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.